from the CSI Today News Desk at the College of Staten Island. Welcome to the CSI Today Talks Podcast with your hosts, David Pizzuto and Terry Manns. The CSI Today Talks Podcast is your connection to the College of Staten Island with the newsmakers that make it happen. From world-renowned faculty and staff, dynamic students, and community leaders, stay connected to CSI with CSI Today Talks. And now, here is your host, Terry Mayers. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the CSI Today Talks podcast on CSIToday.com or from wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This is Terry Mayers, co-host of CSI Today Talks, here to bring you the latest episode, Season 3, Episode 10. Today we're talking with Dr. Jonathan Wesley, Executive Chief Diversity Officer at CSI. Before we get to Jonathan, we want to remind you to make sure that you subscribe to our podcast. Co-host David Pizzuto and I will look to bring you new episodes often. Like this episode coming up, all of our episodes are available via our archive on Anchor.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, from our website at www.csitoday.com, or from wherever you found us today. So let's get right into it. Thanks for joining us today, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. How are you today? I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Doing all right, thank you. First of all, as we jump into this interview, uh, could you please tell me about your professional background prior to coming to CSI? Sure. So um, prior to coming to CSI, I call myself tri-vocational. So I have always served in the academy or in higher ed. I also have served in uh, nonprofit spaces per my community service work, as well as mm-hmm. faith organizations. So I'm an ordained member of clergy, uh, socialized as, as Christian, and I still do hold uh, my faith dear. So I was, I've was i served in various capacities as an associate pastor in other roles, but mostly within higher ed. Prior to coming to CSI, I worked at another institution of higher education as a senior director of equity and inclusion in academic affairs. So I was basically okay. the chief diversity officer for academic affairs for our global and university campus. We had an online concept or portion of our portfolio, and then we had an actual traditional residential campus. So I led all of the DEI efforts there. Prior to that, I've, like I said, worked in higher ed and in academics. I was a clinical faculty member. I worked on the admission side of uh, higher ed. That's where I started. Then I moved into student services and first year experience, and then just landed in uh, academic affairs. That's where I spent the majority of my time. And now I'm here. All right. If you would, please discuss the evolution of the chief diversity officer's role at CSI and why those changes came about. Sure, sure. Great question. So the chief diversity officer role has been a part of CUNY and has been at CSI. My role does have the predecessor. So Dale Dimitrov, who's currently our dean of students, was the chief diversity officer here. Catherine Ferrara, who's now our labor designee, was also the chief diversity officer here. And then we had Tori, who served in this role interim as well. So the role has been here. However, the evolution is that the roles previously were chief diversity officer and title nine officer in one role, right? So in CUNY, the chief diversity officer role is not what the field would suggest a chief diversity officer is, right? A lot of my work 
and a lot of those who preceded me were heavily focused on compliance. So leading all cases of investigations pertaining to discrimination, harassment, retaliation, and Title IX, as well as managing all recruitment that comes from the college, right? So every oh, okay. role that's posted to approve every job description, to review compensation, to do equity audits of compensation and give that information back to the college to make some different types of decisions, to write the annual affirmative action plan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really more so focused on compliance. Per mm -hmm. the most recent Middle States visit to CSI, there was a recommendation made that the this role needed to be elevated. And so this was what President Lynch deemed to be most appropriate to create an executive chief diversity officer position and uh, special assistant to the president for diversity, equity, and inclusion. So now that this is a cabinet level position, I report directly to the president where previously the CDOs did not. Um, they were right. report up through the chief of staff or through another function within the institution. So I'm the first one to directly report to the president. So that's the evolution piece. And in addition to that, I have staff. So within CUNY, I'm the only office that has the number of direct reports that I have that represents various areas of the institution. And my role is responsible for leading all DEI programs across the college. So programs and having systemic and structural impact, right? Because this role is not just about programs for, for the sake of checking a box to say we did something, mm -hmm. but the chief diversity officer role in theory and in practice should have systemic and structural impact to create and sustain organizational change. So that's looking at policies across the institution, right? Um, right. And engaging in other various depths of work. My work touches every facet of this institution from okay. facilities to public safety to academics to student services enrollment management finance how we spend our money are we engaging with minority owned businesses you know so those types mm -hmm. of things my role is responsible for engaging in all of those components whereas previously this role was not all right how does it feel to be the college's first diversity officer and why what i can say from a feeling perspective is any person who serves in this type of role has to be called to the work. This isn't something to, I would say, move somebody's career forward or things of, of that nature, but it has to be a calling to want to engage with humans, right? And mm -hmm. create a culture that is sustained in equity, where equity is centered. So being the first person to have this role at CSI it's been interesting, I will say, um, because when we talk about equity, we're talking about accountability. And when we talk about accountability and we're talking about demographics, race, gender, disability, sexuality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and how do we engage fairly and consistently across the board, that's interesting, right? Again, I'm the okay. first one in this role here, so there was not a roadmap. <laughs> I have been the roadmap <laughs> or trying to create the road <laughs> okay. as the trailblazer. So it's it's been very interesting, I would say that. All right. And maybe building upon your last answer, why, in your opinion, is it important that President Lynch has made you a part of his cabinet? 
Yeah, so President Lynch values diversity, equity, and inclusion. When I was being interviewed for this role, I did ask him very specifically about his values and commitment to the work because as a person coming into this inaugural role, I also wanted to be clear that I was not stepping into a position for the sake of it's a trendy thing to do because hiring chief diversity officers across uh, higher ed and outside of higher ed has been more so trendy since the murder of George Floyd and the mm -hmm. other murders of, of Black bodies in, in this country. So, you know, it was important for President Lynch, per the recommendation from middle states and to amplify the efforts to show that we are a campus, you know, the only large residential campus within CUNY, we sit on 204 acres of land, we have to engage in DEI more seriously. And being at the College of Staten Island, where there are many comments about what Staten Island is or, or is not, but one of the, the facts is that there have been some challenges with diversity in reference to the boroughs of New York City, you know, so everybody kind of talks about that. That's not a secret information. Um, but I, it was important to lift to the cabinet level because the chief diversity officer should always report to the CEO. In order for the work to have systemic and structural impact, it needs the backing of and support of and the um, administration of by the, the CEO, right? I can say things and recommend things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but it is within the power of the most senior administrator to enforce what we are saying that we're going to do. Um, All right. So that's why it's important to be on cabinet and to bring the DEI lens to the table. Now, I'm not suggesting that prior to me arriving that the lens was not there, but this is the work that I know how to do, along with other things that I know how to do. But my lens is very clear from D of a DEI perspective, and I'm able to help our other colleagues look at their functional areas through a DEI lens as well, because this is not something that is just incumbent upon me as one person, nor my small staff at the institution, but it is the responsibility of our other colleagues as a whole and our students to view life through a DEI lens. And that will help us make more decisions that continue to embrace diversity, center equity, and cause us to practice inclusion. Why don't we talk a little bit, take a closer look at the areas that you and your office oversee uh, and discussing some of the intricacies of each area, including things like who's directing these areas, the purpose of them, and the initiatives. So let's start off with institutional equity and Title IX compliance. Sure. So institutional equity and Title IX compliance, the director in that space is Tara Mastrangelo. So she's one of my direct reports. She started in January when I did. Um, she is an alum of CSI as well. She went here for undergrad. And um, Tara has her JD. She went off to, to law school and she's joined us. When she first joined the college in January, she was the confidential executive officer for uh, Title IX. And mm -hmm. so I rewrote her job description to be more institutional equity focused and the Title IX piece, because from in the field of higher ed, most of these functions have an institutional equity officer who looks at the equity of the institution, right? Because okay. someone needs to have that lens. And of course, focus on the Title IX piece, yes, but you all see the duality of these roles. So I, I wrote her job description to be more concise, but also speak to how her role will have more institutional impact instead of just focusing on cases of Title IX compliance, right? And so she also serves as a deputy to me from the compliance side, 
Whereas if I'm unavailable, she is approved in my absence to do some of my work on my behalf. So that's that area. It's new. She's been doing programming uh, with the Bertha Harris Women's Center with Professor Catherine Lavender. And we have the obligation per Odie to also do programming. So we're not just doing compliance work, but we're also demonstrating and trying to increase the knowledge of our student base and our faculty and staff that this is what our office does and you can come to us for support not just in crisis right but you if you have a crisis of course come to us and you can file a complaint but you mm -hmm. can also learn more through the programs that tara offers through that area and it's just her so she's a staff of one she's a heo but it's just her leading that area of compliance okay the next one, the Office of Accessibility Services. Yes. So the Office of Accessibility Services was previously the Center for Student Accessibility, and that is currently led by Stefan Charles-Pierre. He is the director of that space, and they are located in 1P. The evolution of that space I'll speak to briefly. Moving forward, employee accommodations are also being handled by the Office of Accessibility because all areas in my portfolio serve students, faculty, staff, and the community, right? That is a, a distinction of our division. Um, okay. Employees who have accommodations where previously they would go through human resources, they will now go through the Office of Accessibility Services in order to receive whatever reasonable accommodations that they need and what that staff deem to be most appropriate. All right. The next one, the LGBTQ Resource Center. Yes, the LGBTQ Resource Center is ran by our Assistant Director of Social Justice, Jeremiah Jerkowitz. Jeremiah is also a CSI alum, and so he has been leading that space for a long time now, uh, and he's mm -hmm. really passionate about the students. They are located in 1C, so his role focuses only on uh, LGBTQ resources for students, faculty, and staff, providing robust programming, and receiving other funds to promote the programming that he's currently doing. And he's been doing a really great job in that space. Typically, everybody knows Jeremiah. <laughs> he's, oh, yeah. He, <laughs> he gets around. He yes. uh, His trainings are, are really wonderful. Yes, yes, yes. The Safe Zone training and other things that he um, is looking to do to expand those services, again, it's just him leading that space as well. So I appreciate him and all of his efforts. But yes, he is the Assistant Director of Social Justice slash uh, the LGBTQ Resource Center. Okay. And you just mentioned the last one I'm going to ask you about the Office of Social Justice. Tell me about that one, please. Yeah. So when I joined the college in January, I came in with a plan. <laughs> and okay. in my plan, uh, I have a full org chart, very, very full org chart. And a part of that org chart is the Department of Social Justice, whereas Jeremiah Jerkowitz would report through that structure eventually, and so would Dr. John Meche. So Dr. John Meche is also part of my staff. He's an Associate Director of Social Justice and leading the Men's Center here at CSI, so he's also located in 1C. So the areas that are focused on the social justice components, i.e. the LGBTQ Resource Center, 
the men's center and some of the other centers that we create or that might come into our portfolio would ultimately report through the uh, Department of Social Justice within ODIE. So they will continue on with their programming for students, faculty, and staff. And my hope is that that area would also be able to engage more so with the community so that we can have some greater impacts in our surrounding area and in, in New York City. So that that's the hope. We're not there yet. But uh, that is the desire to build out that area, to have a more social justice focused arm. When we look at our world and what other institutions of higher ed are doing, they have social justice departments, right? So if we mm -hmm. want to be as CSI in alignment with what the field is doing, then this is the way for us to move forward. All right. And you mentioned the uh, Men's Center. Can you tell me a little bit about that, please? Yeah, so the Men's Center was birthed from the Black Male Initiative, which is a CUNY initiative. And okay. so Dr. John Meche has been here uh, leading the uh, leading BMI. And so over the end of the spring semester, going into our summertime, we had some conversations. And so Dr. Meche's portfolio was expanded. And so he joined ODI as an associate director of social justice and now leading the men's center. So the men's center will officially open in spring of 2024, okay. but he is still working on that and, and building that frame out. So that will be open for all students, of course, because all of our spaces do serve all students, but his focus is on the male students that uh, attend CSI. And that's for all persons who identify as male, not just those who are cisgender. All right. And are there any other services that your office provides that we haven't covered yet? Not at this time. You know, um, <laughs> we consult with individuals. We serve on various committees in which we are called on. And we are more than happy to continue to partner with individuals. You know, um, we would like to engage in much more programming. Uh, but as a small staff, there's only but so much that we can do. But the partnerships built across the institution will be really, really helpful in expanding the programming and our reach at the institution. In this era of attacks on DEI efforts in various states in the U.S., what do you think can be done at the national and state level to protect diversity, equity, and inclusion and regain ground in the states where it's under attack? I want to nuance this a little bit. Okay. And I want to nuance it in the context that while DEI is under a public attack in some states, more so the southern states at this mm -hmm. time, that does not mean that DEI is not under attack in what is deemed to be the more liberal states, right? right. Racism exists everywhere. It's not just in the South. Misogyny exists everywhere. Queerphobia exists everywhere. So when I consider that and I nuance that and I state that, I kind of would like to focus maybe more so on this protection of DEI. And if I'm going to talk about regaining ground, I think all of us who are doing this work are trying to gain some type of ground. And, okay. and what I mean by that is those persons who are charged with leading diversity, equity, and inclusion offices, we are most times under-resourced and understaffed. 
with a lot of expectations to do a lot of things without having the human or fiscal resources. That's in the literature. That's not anything new, um, but it is a problem, right? So when we look at the National Association of Diversity Officers in Higher Education, NADAHI, that's who I take my standards of practice from and all other CDOs we have our standards of practice from our national organization. And so NADAHI sends out communications they have policy teams that are working with those states who are struggling. In the South, for example, those who were chief diversity officers, not all of them, but there are some states where their titles have been changed. Everything that's mm -hmm. related to diversity, equity, and inclusion that was in somebody's title is now being taken out. They're now being called organizational change managers or something of the yeah, sort. Something to, really innocuous. Yeah. Yes, yes, to diminish the impact of what DEI is supposed to do. So as I always share about DEI, it is not a checkbox. It's soul work, S-O-U-L. It's in one of my publications where I coined it to be as such. If we are not interrogating the ills and wills of our own soul, the individual, then the institutions will not change. So You're right. when yeah. institutions make the decision or people within the institutions make a decision to combat DEI, that's really showing that there is a fragility of sorts. And because there is a fragility and a deep uncomfortability, in order for whoever is in the dominant group to not feel uncomfortable, they have the power to change the entire narrative. Yeah, right? you're right. But for those of us who live as we do, right, I'm a Black, millennial, openly queer identified, and I'm a member of clergy. I mean, that's just four of my my intersecting identities. When we step into these spaces, we are always trying to find grounding, you know, um, mm -hmm. because even stepping into a space with a PhD, in some people's eyes, I am still less than whatever they deem me to, to be, right? <laughs> because right, yeah. So that's why when, when we talk about grounding, uh, finding ground, it's always a matter of finding ground based on how the institution is really prepared for the work or not. And what mm -hmm. is the accountability of the institution to hold itself accountable, right? So when we talk about grounding here, institutions have to be committed to doing the work of change change management through a DEI lens. Like I mentioned earlier, everything that we do should be done through a DEI lens. So that way it does not fall onto one person or one group, uh, one department in order to do all of the work for DEI. That's inequitable, but that's what happens, right? Oftentimes our roles are hired for, we're expected to provide the resolutions for everybody, but we don't get any support <laughs> right. in providing the resolutions. It's not so, comprehensive. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, so it's, it's really, really challenging. But on the national and state level, it's important for those who are voted into positions, if people are really looking at that, to understand people's DEI background, if they have one at all, and how are they using that lens to be in these seats where they are the ones making the policy decisions, right? If we know mm -hmm. that there are persons who have a disdain for Black people or who are racist, but when they are voted into a position, what's the ideology here? Is it that they are not going to be racist because they are now a voted elected official? <laughs> that's yeah. not how that works. So when we talk about the national, I mean, that, that's, but that's a whole other conversation about 
voting and, and really vetting candidates and, and things of that nature and for the community to call for those who have a more DEI-centered approach to their work. And right. I would say the same at the state level. You know, it's, it's about who's being voted in, who's also running for these potential positions, and what change are they committed to making? Because again, in doing DEI work, you have to be committed to the cause, right? Yep. This is mm -hmm. not about advancing one's career to be, you know, whatsoever else. This is passion work. This is heart work. This is soul work. Selfless. Right? Yeah. yeah. So if, 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 and if a person is not engaged in that, then it's going to be hard to protect DEI. And it's hard to protect it when it's under attack based on some egregious beliefs. You know, critical race theory has been under attack for the past few years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always question, well, is critical race theory under attack because Black individuals created the theory? Or because you, you, there are so many other theories that are not right. under as much critique and they're not being removed from the schools. But that's another curriculum conversation um, about the colonization of curriculum and whose voice is deemed to. But again, all of that is rooted in DEI. So when a person or when a people make a decision to erase history, as hard of a history as it might be, but to erase slavery from history and then want to focus on something else when it impacts the Black community, those things are problematic. And yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of lifting these as examples while I do understand there are other communities who are impacted by these choices. It's just really difficult to engage and try to protect something when we have to live our lives trying to be protected first and foremost, that's a struggle enough. So then to take that on top of coming into an institution and trying to fight for it, it's a lot of stress. All right, let's shift gears a little bit. What are some of the most rewarding aspects of your job? Some of the most rewarding aspects of my job here at CSI is I'm able to engage with some pretty good people. I enjoy my staff, my division of Odie. I enjoy my folks. Um, okay. I really, really do. We have a good time. We laugh, we joke, uh, we cry together, we sing together. You know, these things help make the workplace endurable. It was a very tight net. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And that's a practice of mine. I just believe as a leader, you should care about your people. And so I care about my people, whether they are a direct report of mine or they are a direct report of one of my other direct reports. We're all still part of this same community. So, that, so that's that's really important to me. I will also say some of the other rewarding aspects of my job is building community with some of our other colleagues here at the institution. You know, last night I attended the DEI mural that my office was able to lead. So there are murals in 1P. And okay. um, to see that come into manifestation was just so great, you know, to be able to work with Shona and Diane Hebert, who was the artist in residence. I mean, that event was just so beautiful. I was able to see some of the fruit of the labor, you know, that I've put okay. in since, since being here. So um, and I enjoy being around people. So, you know, I have work study students here in, in OD as we're still continuing to grow. Our office is not even a year old yet. So to see the progress that we have made and not even a full 12 months has been really, really great. And I, again, I enjoy that there have been people also, I have to name this, people who have 
other colleagues and students who have been able to speak life into me being here, which has helped me tremendously. Now, we've looked at some of the rewards. What are some of the challenges you're facing right now? Some of the challenges, which isn't you know insular to uh, CSI, are fiscal constraints. You know, it is um, very, very difficult to engage when you don't have the fiscal resources. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, and, and we just don't. I mean, CUNY is, is in the state that it's in. But when, when an institution commits to diversity, equity, and inclusion, it is also a fiscal commitment, right? Um, so it, it's impossible to do large amounts of programming on a very minimal budget. And it's also really challenging, to be honest, to find those resources when uh, my role is kind of three-pronged, right? I have to manage compliance and investigation. So I could be working on something or want to look for grants. And then if somebody has a complaint that's based on discrimination, retaliation, harassment, or Title IX, I have to take that complaint and I have to spend time doing an investigation. And that takes hours. It's not a quick situation to work through. So when you have those kind of competing agendas, but are responsible for them both or for them all, as well as when everyone else is calling on me for support, it makes it very, very challenging to move forward more of the initiatives that I have planned, that we have planned as an office when I don't have the time, the bandwidth to engage. You mentioned last night's event, and I've noticed since you came to the college that there's been a dramatic uptick in the number of DEI events on campus. Uh, Could you give me a few examples of past events and maybe some future ones that are coming up? Yes. November 8th is National First Generation Day. So in 1A, Dr. John Meche, who's on my staff, and Jen Durando from Academic Affairs, they partnered together to put together this program. So on our webpage, uh, on CSI's webpage, we have our other lists of events that are coming up. Um, And you will continue to see more programming because all of us are tasked with doing programs. That's every one of my direct reports, and we all pitch in to help each other. In January, we are planning to have a symposium on anti-Semitism, which is tentatively scheduled for Tuesday, January 30th. February is Black History Month, so we'll have a host of programming that's going on then. And we'll also continue to have a program, at least during the other Heritage Month, where there's other special dates. So, for example, December 1st is known to be World AIDS Day. While we won't have like a formal program on December 1st, it is our goal to have a program in December to acknowledge those who are living with HIV AIDS and those who have passed on from HIV AIDS. That's important, right? That's a national day and we should be paying uh, homage to those who are deceased and those who are who are living with. And to promote that as a way to help under, individuals on the college know that, hey, it's not the death sentence that it was mm-hmm. and that there's help and that there are resources, right? So our office is trying to bridge uh, where we can as much as we can with internal and external resources so that people know that this is a place of belonging. You know, we're not just talking about race and gender, sexuality and being disabled, but we also want to provide space for nursing parents, you know, things of that nature. Like that's, that's what our office is structured to do. And that's what we will continue to do. All right. 
And here's an important question for our listeners. What can members of the college community do to bolster the efforts of your office? Yes, there are a few things. Um, one, I would say it's really important to partner with us. Sometimes individuals hold my office responsible for, again, doing a lot and not willing to partner. So we need persons that have resolutions, that have creative ideas. We're all about creative ideas over here. Um, so we would love to partner with other groups and communities, faculty, staff, students, to engage in showing that our efforts are, again, not just internal to us, to Odie, right? It's not just us, it's everybody. Diversity, right. equity, and inclusion is everybody's responsibility, not just one office. We would love to learn and to grow with you, but in order to do that, you have to let us know what's going on. You have to know what, what is your experience here? What is the culture and what is the climate like for you as a faculty member, a staff member, or a student? You know What does that look like? And not being afraid to share one's story. Right. I do think that from my time here, at least I know some people are really hesitant about sharing stories because of a fear of retaliation or sharing externally. But my office is extremely confidential. So we're not taking things and you know sharing it, it elsewhere. And even though I report to the president, things that I need to hold close to the vest is what I do. All right. Um, and use that as a way to inform what we do moving forward. So I'll say partnership is definitely one. The second thing that can help bolster our efforts is when doing programming, just communicating with us and seeing how we can either support it or if you need some resources from our office. And, you know, we're more than happy to do that as well. Uh, and lastly, I would say in order to bolster our efforts of diversity, equity and inclusion, we need everybody to participate and understand that this is an institutional mandate, not a Dr. Jonathan Wesley directive. All right. As an institution, there's been a commitment made to embrace diversity, to center equity, and to practice inclusion in hopes of creating a culture of belonging. That's on our webpage. That's where we're grounded. We talk about regaining ground. Here, that's where we want to regain the ground. But we need everybody to understand that it is important. It's not theoretical. It's not a myth. It's not something that's floating outside of oneself. But in order to bolster our efforts, it is important that everybody does their own individual work. We, right. as an office, cannot teach everybody about the work that they need to do for themselves, right? DEI work is very internal. It's internal and external. But if, if we do not take the opportunity to look internally, just like Michael Jackson said, you know, I'm looking at the man in the mirror, <laughs> you know, right. while he used man from a gender perspective, but that you change the pronoun to whatever fits a person's identity. What are we doing to look in the mirror daily? and challenge our own assumptions, our own biases, and be humble enough to understand that we all still have work to do. And even though I'm in this position, I still have work to do. You know, we all have work to do. No one has arrived in DEI. You know, <laughs> we, we grow and we glow, but we will have pitfalls. We will make some mistakes, but it's about acknowledging what those mistakes are, acknowledging what those implicit and explicit biases are, you know, we talk a lot about implicit, but there's a lot of explicit stuff that happens as well. Those things need to be called into accountability. So I, I need everybody to, to hear that from the heart. And when someone calls you into accountability, 
Don't be offended by it. This is part of us growing and glowing together. It might be uncomfortable, but it's to help us all to be better. So that's what we would ask, what I would ask. That's the only way that my office will continue to sustain is when we have an institutional effort made from the institutional commitment that DEI is not a checkbox, but it's soul work. And that we're all committed to transforming our souls, which will then transform our institution. One final question for you, Jonathan. What's your vision for the future for the Office of DEI? More staff and more money. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in addition to that, I'm serious about that, though. I'm very serious to all the listeners. I'm very serious Uh, because we need need more staff and we need more money. Uh, So if there are any resources that you all have, please feel free to let us know. But seriously, in order for us to engage, what I see for the office is that we will have more staff. You know, I would love for some of the other functional areas of the college that might make more sense to be a part of the OD portfolio to be transitioned to the OD portfolio so that we can continue to expand our reach and, and have greater impact. I also see us, you know, being the leading office of DEI within CUNY. You know, uh, people Mm -hmm. at CUNY Central know that I'm here, know of the work that we are doing as an institution. I want to continue to demonstrate that there is a difference (laughs) between a chief diversity officer and a chief compliance officer, right? So it is my hope as well that we can continue to parse out what that looks like at CSI so that we can balance the both and and not be overwhelmed by the both and, right? Especially from someone sitting in my type of role. Um, I also see the future of my office being able to provide more programs, more fun activities, more lectures, more courageous conversations about touchy topics. I want our students, I want my work-study students that I currently have in Odie and in the other departments that are within the Odie portfolio to lead courageous conversations themselves. I do not need to be the face of everything. I don't want to be the face of everything. I don't want to be the voice of everything. (laughs) Um, I want to empower them to use their voice and to gain these skills and the confidence to step into spaces, have these uncomfortable conversations, grow in grace with community so that when they graduate from here, they're able to walk away with some skills that you don't per se learn by doing a monotonous job. But I want them to to have those experiences. I also want the same for our faculty and staff to be able to lead courageous conversations at CSI. Like I I want us as a community to engage more so. And I'll also add for the future of my office, I want my office to continue to demonstrate and lead by example. That's the mandate that I gave to everybody when I joined in January. We have divisional values that I expect all of us to abide by, right? And I've been been a stickler about that. And if we can continue to demonstrate those values and communicate that to the campus, I see us as being a catalyst of change. That's who we are. We are all agents of change in this division, representing our various areas, yes, but collectively we are all advocating for positive change. Or as in the words of the late, most honorable John Lewis, we're getting into good trouble. 
necessary right. trouble. So that's what I expect the office to continue to do and do it in ways that will have systemic and structural impact and where DEI, our office is helping to ensure that DEI is embedded in every functional area of the institution. How does my office help support governance and our other structures that exist to ensure that we're looking at things through a DEI perspective? How are we training people who are on appointments committees or, or other areas of the institution on how to make sure that when making the decision, we're keeping DEI in mind always, not at the back of the mind, but in the forefront or somewhere right. in the center where it permeates and looks at the world, you know, holistically. So I'm hoping that we are able to, to do those things. I know it's a lot. I'm pretty ambitious. I will name that. But it's not ambitious without reason because this work is too important. We don't need to have any more murders of marginalized or underrepresented community members in order for CSI to respond. So my hope is that the future of my office continues to help CSI think more so proactively instead of reactively, because that's also All right. important. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today and telling us all about the critical work that diversity, equity, and inclusion your office does. You have a lot on your hands, but you are really making a difference here on campus. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks again. Take care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening. Coming up next week, David Pizzuto rejoins the show with another exclusive interview on CSI Today Talks. Check us out, as well as all the newsmakers at CSI, on www.csitoday.com, and be sure to subscribe. We'll see you next week, right here on CSI Today Talks. Thank you for listening to this edition of the CSI Today Talks podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to get alerted for brand new episodes and to listen on demand to your favorites. Be sure to check us out at www.csitoday.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.